This is the Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to the Hindu on Books podcast. I'm Anand Krishnan, your host for today. In this episode, we are discussing a new book called The Importance of Shinzo Abe, India, Japan and the Indo-Pacific, an excellent collection of essays edited by Sanjaya Baru, that examines deeply the legacy of the former Japanese leader, who was Japan's longest-serving prime minister in history. Abe stepped down in 2020, citing health reasons, and of course his shock assassination in July 2022 stunned Japan and the world. We are joined today by Dr. Baru, as well as Swasni Haider, the Hindu's diplomatic affairs editor, who has also contributed one of the book's chapters to discuss Abe's legacy both for Japan as well as India-Japan relations and the world. The three parts of the book look at Abe's domestic legacy, his impact on India-Japan relations, as well as his significance for the broader Indo-Pacific. We will begin this conversation looking at Abe's foreign policy and security legacy before turning to matters domestic. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you, Anand. Thank you, Anand. Pleasure to be here. To begin with, Dr. Baru, can you just share a little bit about the idea for this book and how it came about, as well as this very interesting group of writers that you've assembled? Well, the idea, of course, presented itself uh, the day we heard the news of uh, Prime Minister Abe's assassination. I somehow took great liking to him the few times I had the opportunity uh, to be present when he was talking to Prime Minister Manmohan Singh. And, um, and then, of course, I followed many of his uh, speeches and his policies. And I have, uh, for a long, long time, taken the view that uh, India should have an independent equation with Japan, independent of whatever relations we have with other major powers, particularly the United States and China. This has been an old bee in my bonnet, if you like. And I felt somehow that Abe was uh, the first prime minister uh, who seemed to have a mind of his own. Uh, this came across particularly sharply when Abe stepped down in, at the end of his first term. And, uh, you know, Manmohan Singh was very excited with his meeting with Abe in August 2007 in Delhi. And subsequently in 2008, he met Abe's successor. I think it was Fukuda, if I'm not mistaken. And in Singapore on the sidelines of an ASEAN-India meeting. And we were, I mean, Prime Minister Singh was terribly disappointed when he found that Fukuda was a complete, uh, you know, departure from Abe. Abe was an enthusiastic uh, pro-India Prime Minister, and Fukuda seemed to have very little interest in India. And then when Abe came back, and, and all of that is recorded in the book, you see his second term, there's so many important contributions to the relationship. So, to me, it appeared that Abe was a prime driver of the change in the India-Japan relationship, just as I believe uh, George Bush was the prime driver in the change in the U.S.-India relationship. So I think the idea of a book about Abe presented itself, you know, as soon as we heard about his death, I thought, you know, here is someone about whom it's worth writing. Now, for your second question, how did I gather this group of writers? I was just lucky. I think it's to do with also the respect that each one of them uh, had individually for Prime Minister Abe. 
But when I drew up a list of uh, speakers and I consulted uh, my friend uh, Takenori Horimoto, uh, who was one of the authors and who happened to be in India around that time. And I also uh, consulted a couple of others, including Dr. Jayashankar. And, you know, I got a list of names beginning with Tomohiko Taniguchi, who is the aide of uh, Prime Minister Abe and who wrote the famous speech uh, delivered in the Indian Parliament in August. And when I wrote to this list of people, both Japanese and Indian, each one of them almost within, you know, days, in fact, in a couple of cases, within an hour or so, replied, uh, accepting my invitation. I was quite surprised by the willingness with which everybody re replied, saying, yes, we would be quite happy to contribute message. So that's how the book began. And one of the things, uh, Dr. Baro, that we often immediately think of or associate with uh, the long reign Abe had, especially relative to uh, other Japanese prime ministers, is what he did in terms of uh, raising Japan's profile globally. Uh, and this is something that I'd like to uh, get both of your thoughts on, starting with Dr. Baru. Uh, can you speak about uh, how unprecedented actually it was in terms of how he changed uh, the way Japan looked at uh, its own place in the world uh, during the time that he was prime minister? Well, I think Japan was waiting for someone like Abe. I mean, the few times I traveled to Japan in the 1990s, which was, in a sense, the lost decade for Japan. Um, you know, in the 80s, I, uh, uh, I mentioned in my book the fact that many of us were quite impressed reading Shintaro Ishihara's uh, The Japan That Can Say No. And I remember in the 80s, as an economist, I did some research and some writing, uh, in fact, even for the Hindu at that time, on the trade action the United States was taking against Japan, the use of Super 301, Special 301, I mean, Japan was the target nation. People forget that. There's a lot of literature available even you know, on the internet. American scholars writing about how you know, the Japanese have to be put in their place in, in terms of misuse of economic uh, trade, trade privileges and the kind of anti-China rhetoric that we found in the last few years. Uh, you find exactly the same uh, anti-Japan rhetoric in the 80s. And, and I was familiar with a lot of this, um, you know, this quite uh, sometimes uh, manifestly racist American writing on Japan. Then comes the lost decade and, and, and J Japan turns completely to China. Uh, I traveled quite a bit to Japan in the 90s uh, when I, everybody was only talking about China. Uh, no one I, I interacted with during those three or four visits was really interested in India. So therefore, to discover Abe, and then he arrived in Delhi when I was in the Prime Minister's office, to meet a man who was so focused in India, for me was a you know breath of fresh air. And then I realized that you know the Japan of the 1990s, in many ways, was captive to Japanese business interests in China, uh, and that uh, on the other hand, there was important nationalist uh, constituencies in Japan that were waiting for an assertion uh, of the kind we saw in the 80s by someone like Shintaro Ishihara. You know, the Japanese nationalism is always latent in Japanese politics and society. Uh, I recall speaking at the Ship and Ocean Foundation in Tokyo once along with uh, Uday Bhaskar of the Institute for Defense Studies. Uh, we were in Tokyo. And then when we said uh, that, you know, when I said in my talk that you know, I look forward to a day... <laughs> 
could have its own independent nuclear capability. And I said it said this in the context of Japan in, imposing sanctions on India when we tested. Many in the audience clapped. And, and you know, so there is this sentiment in Japan of the need for you know, standing on their own feet. And I think Abe finally captured that, that constituency and, and then tried to pursue policies that would enable Japan uh, to both economically and in terms of defense stand on its own feet. I think, the, in fact, you know, it, if you were to break up uh, how that is seen in Abe's uh, time and his tenures, if you like, his two tenures as prime minister, in everything that Abe did, there was this sense of rebuilding Japan, bringing Japan, uh, you know, here in India, we sometimes uh, hear a lot more talk about uh, harking back to a kind of great history. Uh, but for, for the Japanese, I think, uh, under Abe, uh, whether you look at what he did in terms of rebuilding Japanese uh, industry, and creating something called Abenomics, which I'm sure Dr. Baru uh, can speak to a lot more. But the way he looked at rebuilding Japanese uh, industry, um, his desire to constantly try and revisit uh, and revise history, some of it, and that's the chapter I've written, uh, driven by his desire to show his grandfather, Nobusuke Kishi, uh, one of Japan's uh, uh, former prime ministers, in a better light. Um, and uh, and also his real move, and you see it even today, uh, it's not just Prime Minister Suga who followed Abe, but also Prime Minister Kishida, who have completely changed Japan's outlook on its um, on its pacifism, and that really accrues to Abe changing things around. And this was a Japan that was no longer as tied or wedded to its opposition to the nuclear question as the Japan of the past was. And I think when he came to India in 2007, met Dr. Baru, met uh, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, uh, this was an Abe who had already seen the, the depths of ties, if you like, between India and Japan after 1998 and the nuclear testing. So, um, you know, it, it is interesting that everything that he actually did if you break it down, whether it was militarily, strategically, um, business-wise, in the industry, economically, or educationally and historically, really was driven by this desire to kind of revive Japan, to bring Japan back into its old glory. Right. And I think that uh, for many of our listeners, the, the, there's a very lengthy section um, in the book on his India Connect and what he did for India-Japan relations. Uh, Dr. Baru, can you speak a little bit about the chemistry that you would have seen firsthand that Abe had with uh, Manmohan Singh and later as well that he, he seemed to strike up quite a relationship with Prime Minister Modi, which which is something that uh, External Affairs Minister Jai Shankar writes about uh, in the foreword to this book. Can you speak a little bit about how those relationships uh, played a role in driving India-Japan ties in this period? I think there are two, two aspects to it. One, of course, as Suhasini mentions in her chapter, quoting uh, Tomohiko Taniguchi, who was Abe's speechwriter, uh, he says that you know, Man, uh, Abe regarded Manmohan Singh, his mentor, while Modi, his friend. So I think the relationship with Manmohan Singh, uh, which incidentally was more or less the kind of thing that Obama said about Manmohan Singh, that he was his guru. So Manmohan Singh had this professorial kind of demeanor about him which a lot of politicians around the world 
I think related to as someone you know who's seen the world, experienced a lot, and had a lot of knowledge about issues. But equally important, and of course, don't forget. People often forget. Manmohan Singh was also Secretary General of the South Commission, so he had some kind of international exposure apart from being an economist at home. But the other interesting thing uh, is that Manmohan Singh during Indira Gandhi's time. Uh, in the 1980s, when he was Deputy Chairman of Planning Commission, chaired a committee called the India-Japan Study Committee, which tried to actually revive the India-Japan relationship, which was, you know, in many ways uh, impacted by the Cold War and our friendship with the Soviet Union and Japan's proximity to the United States. So the India-Japan Study Committee was a quite an elaborate effort uh, chaired on the Japanese side by Soburo Okita. And I think when they first met, I, I would imagine I was not present when the two met, and the two met incidentally before Abe became prime minister. He was on a private visit to Delhi, and between Jay Shankar and me, we we organized he was we organized a meeting uh, for him with Manmohan Singh, and I, and I think Manmohan Singh uh, uh, kind of gave him his back his own background about his familiarity with Japan, and the second factor uh, for Manmohan Singh was that in ninety one. After the balance of payments crisis, as finance minister, he uh, reached out to Japan, and Japan was one of the countries that actually helped India a lot. So he had this historical memory of a positive relationship with Japan, which I think Abe must certainly have taken into account as he met him subsequently in 2007 as the prime minister of Japan. So he already had an appreciation of the man. But I, you know, I can't say this on authority. Uh, but I say this based on on my own reading of of Manmohan Singh. I think, like Nehru, like Narasimha Rao, and I would imagine even like Vajpayee, there was a certain underlying Asianism in some of our you know prime ministers. We saw our relations with uh, other countries in Asia from a very different perspective than only the Cold War perspective. Japan was an ally with Americans. We were close to Soviets, but I don't think we allowed our view of many countries in Asia uh, to be distorted purely by the Cold War confrontation. And this has been a, a theme of a lot of my recent writing as well. And I think we need to have a view of our neighborhood, independent of whatever other powers, including China and the U.S., have their relations. And I think Manmohan Singh felt that was important. I have a lovely story to tell. I'll mention that and pass on to uh, Swasini. When Koizumi met Manmohan Singh, which was before Abe became Prime Minister, I think this was uh, early in Manmohan Singh's term. Koizumi made a very interesting presentation to him. He said, "You look at Asia, from Japan in the east to India in South Asia, there is a rising Asia, and then from India to the west, there is a troubled Asia." These are the words Koizumi used. India is in the middle of two Asias, he said, and which is the Asia to which? Uh, you think India will increasingly move towards? It was a leading question. I think he was saying a lot about the the geopolitics of Asia at that time, and in many ways about the politics of India at that time. I mean, you guys can be with us if you are a rising, emerging economy, a stable polity like so many of us in East Asia, or you can be a troubled nation, internally divided, you know, religiously bigoted. Like so many of the theocracies to your west, which side are you moving? Uh, and I, 
I recall very clearly that Dr. Manmohan Singh became very reflective when when this was posed so starkly, and of course talked about India's Middle East policy. <laughs> so I think there was this background to the Japan relationship in the early part of the 21st century, which I think even Abe was influenced by. I mean, after all, he was working for Koizumi. Very much, very much. So I think this Asianism concept uh, does somewhere there hark back to India and Japan's shared history, if you like, of uh, of independence or or of uh, coming into their own. Because of course, Japan uh, had uh, that uh, lost the war and then rebuilt itself, and India was rebuilding itself after independence. Uh, and even if you look, and you know, the 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 case I make in the book is really about how. Uh, Japan's relations with three key partners, uh, US, China, and India, were all sort of taught to uh, Abe, in a sense, by his grandfather. You know, people talk about learning something from your gra- on your grandparents' knee, but here you had someone like Abe, who had this towering personality of a grandfather, Nobusuke Kishi, who'd been prime minister. His brother had been prime minister. Um, Shinzo Abe's father had been foreign minister. In fact, he visited India uh, at one point as, as, as foreign minister, I think, in the 60s. Um, and uh, uh, but Abe was 33 when his grandfather passed away. So it wasn't just a you know grandfather-grandson relationship, but someone who grew up with the ideas of his grandfather and of hearing from his grandfather about how India and uh, Prime Minister Nehru had really honored Japan at a time when, frankly, Japan was seen, you know, coming out of the World War as the aggressors, as the losers war crime allegations against them. Nobusuke Kishi himself, who was part of uh, General Tojo's uh, cabinet, had at one point been jailed as a class A war criminal because of his work, uh, because of what he had done in Manchuria. So you had a Japan that was coming out of all of this and yet Prime Minister Nehru, uh, by by inviting uh, Nobusuke Kishi, which is Shinzo Abe's grandfather, uh, in uh, you know, in uh, 1958, had really given him an honor he wasn't getting in many other parts of the world. Uh, and in fact, I have a, a, a clipping from the Hindu of the date when uh, Prime Minister Nehru goes to the airport to receive uh, Prime Minister Kishi, and how he's garlanded by ordinary Indians along the way. I'm sure a lot of it. Uh, was put together by the government. But the interesting thing that, you know, they held a a public meeting together uh, where Nehru spoke about the importance uh, of uh, Kishi in particular. And he says, this is the prime minister of Japan, a country I hold in the greatest esteem. Uh, And this is something then Abe writes about. In fact, he spoke about it every time he came to India. He he writes about it. He wrote a very long uh, piece, a kind of advertisement in the papers when he came to India in 2018. Um, And it was then linked to the way India and Japan worked with each other as two Asian powers, if you like. Obviously, there were the other Asian powers because, you know, there was China uh, that was uh, going to rise and become much a a much bigger economy. Um, But even something small, for example, when Japan as a really poor country began its development program, One of the first countries that accepted Japan's donation was India. India didn't particularly need the small donation. In fact, I was looking at uh, some of the budget papers and they were really wondering what they were going to do with the Japanese uh, funding. But from the 1950s and 60s, you see this relationship also build. And today, when you talk about uh, JICA, the Japanese aid agencies, 
investments in India or work in India, uh, it seems almost natural that Japan should have that kind of role. But it came out of not so much a sense of one being a donor and one being <laughs> the, the debtor, but coming from the idea that here were two self-respecting Asian countries that were really uh, coming into its own. And and I think uh, Abe, in a certain way, mirrors that feeling uh, when he uh, tries to build uh, relations with India. Of course, he was very keen to pull India into the Quad and to pull India into the American construct, if you like, of the, the region. Uh, but it was eventually a bilateral relationship that he sought to build, and he built it with these two men. On the Quad, uh, this is obviously one thing that's on a lot of our minds. And Dr. And, uh, Dr. Barr, you mentioned one of the themes that runs through the book is this very sort of big role that he's actually played in Quad 1.0, the idea of the Indo-Pacific, which of course has gained so much currency now. And I think a lot of people in India immediately associate Abe with this. Uh, can you speak a little bit about that? It's something a number of essays uh, touch upon in the book. What drove his belief uh, in the Indo-Pacific idea uh, and the Quad in particular? Well, I think uh, the Quad is a logical construct coming out of the Indo-Pacific. The Indo-Pacific concept of the Indo-Pacific was really about the shared security concerns or interests of countries ranging all the way from Korea and Japan uh, in the East uh, to India and, and uh, you know, the African coast, if you like, to the Indian Ocean, uh, particularly because uh, large parts of Asia import energy from West Asia and uh, large parts of uh, Africa, West Asia, and Eastern Europe import goods from Asia that go through the Indian So you have this two-way traffic in this region, goods going from the coasts of China, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, uh, to uh, you know the western shores of the Indian Ocean, uh, and further on into Europe, and oil flowing from the western shores of the Indian Ocean uh, to the eastern shores of the Pacific. So there is this very, very important, and if you see a lot of our statements of our own leaders in the last 20, 30 years. There's a recognition of the growing link between our own kind of maritime security uh, and the security of the whole regions. And Abe captured all that uh, in his famous speech uh, addressed to the Indian parliament where he talked about the confluence of the two seas. And I think Abe was the person who put it all in a way that made sense to a lot of people. I mean, after all, even Hillary Clinton spoke about the Indo-Pacific uh, when she gave a lecture in Chennai. Uh, but but I think, you know, the Americans always tend to look at everything from their perspective. While Abe's lecture was you know, more broad in its sweep, historical sweep, as well as in looking at the whole relationship from the point of view of both countries, of India and Japan and the region. Uh, and, and flowing out of that idea came the Quad. Now, Quad, of course, basically brought together the uh, four countries that, or three countries that matter to Japan. Japan uh, is still dependent on the United States, uh, so the U.S. had to be part of that. U.S. is still the most important maritime power in this region. Uh, India is number two, and Australia is there, uh, down the Pacific from Japan. So you kind of, in a sense, it's a natural uh, grouping uh, with, with shared interests, shared concerns. But what is interesting is that 
you know, when the idea came from Japan, the Australians were not very keen. Because clearly, the Australians were at that time very, very dependent on China. And Kevin Rudd was, you know, at that time, the PR man of the Chinese. <laughs> you know, he was going around the world lecturing us all on how we should maintain good relations with China. Um, so the, the, the Australians kind of thumbs, gave a thumbs down. And India, too, at that time, uh, you know, kept its own counsel. Uh, I don't think we, we said no. There is a lot of uh, argument. People keep saying that Manmohan Singh also said no. But I don't think that was correct. I think once the Australians said no, we didn't have to say anything. But on the other hand, we were keeping our counsel, uh, partly because we, we probably were testing the waters to see uh, how the Americans would react and how the others would react. But Abe did not give up the idea. So when he came back to power, I think he pushed the idea hard enough. And there was a change in the political leadership in Australia. Uh, and the Australians uh, took a very different view. And then, of course, uh, by that time, Dr. Manmohan Singh uh, also began to take a different view because, rem remember, the, the Chinese aggression on India uh, increased in its intensity. So, in a sense, China created the environment by, uh, you know, the, the Abe second term that was conducive to the creation of Quad. And, and Quad exists, though still not a security alliance. Um, it's not a military alliance, but it has now come into being. And a final question to you, uh, Suhasini. Uh, the focus of this book, of course, is on Abe's uh, undeniable contributions when it comes to Japan's global role, to Japanese security. Um, on the domestic side of things, his legacy was somewhat mixed in the sense that, of course, he brought uh, stability to Japan of a kind that it hadn't seen in its politics uh, in a long time. Uh, but on the other hand, there was also another side to it where there was persistent accusations of corruption, crony capitalism, uh, this revisionism when it comes to Japan's war crimes. From an Indian perspective, how would you sort of evaluate uh, Abe? The final word to you, Suhasini, are these domestic issues, things that usually kind of fade into the background given the contribution they made to bilateral ties? Or is that something that uh, you think uh, should also be part of the mix? You know, I think, uh, Abhi, uh, um, Anant, it's a very interesting question because no man's legacy is going to be untrammeled or or so perfect that that it doesn't actually bring in some very dark periods. And Abe, as a very hardline, more hardline than others, uh, a faction of his party, uh, brought in, as you said, many revisions to his own uh, country's history, uh, rewriting the history, rewriting the constitution, looking again at uh, Japan's pacifism. And instead, in fact, now we're looking at, I think, 2% increases in their uh, military uh, year on year. Uh, so he did bring a much harder side of Japan out uh, during his time. Uh, a lot of it, as I said, does relate to his link with his grandfather's time. And what is interesting is uh, what Abe tried to do in India where he works, wanted to work with the Northeast. In fact, it's written in the book about how, uh, you know, Abe's unfulfilled dream was really that he wanted to go to the Northeast, to Guwahati. And at the last minute, his trip was canceled because of the CAA protest there. And then Abe uh, stopped, uh, you know, he, he stepped down as prime minister and he never came back. Uh, but uh, but the, the truth of 
Abe's interest in the Northeast, if you like, was to uh, to honor Japanese soldiers. Now, again, that's not a completely, uh, um, uh, you know, it, it's it's not black and white because the people the Japanese soldiers killed were also Indians. Uh, they may have been part of the British Army at the time. And, and of course, the INA had uh, teamed up with the Japanese Army. But this is all contentious parts of history. He, uh, the, his visit to um, uh, uh, to see Radha Binod Pal, the justice who had actually refused to convict the Japanese war criminals, is again part of that slightly contested, controversial history. Or the fact that he went uh, there to Calcutta and made that trip talking about uh, the Japanese role. Now, the Japanese role was in, in some of the worst bombardment of Calcutta uh, during the Second World War. Uh, so many of these parts of history are there. They're part of also how Abe saw the world. Uh, I think time is a great healer. And therefore, in India, we see Abe, and he was a, definitely a more popular world leader than many that have uh, visited India uh, in terms of his popularity in India. Uh, and I think many see Abe as, a, as, as his genuine desire to have a special relationship with India. He continued that regardless of the, uh, of the setbacks uh, the relationship may have received or other more flamboyant players on the scene who clearly India had uh, uh, very strong ties with. Um, and he continued it in a very dogged sort of way. And I think people recognize that and appreciate that, even as all the parts of the contested history that you referred to are a part of his legacy. Right. There's a lot more about uh, this book that we didn't get into today. Uh, there is something that I found very interesting in how he very adroitly dealt with China, among many other issues. I think he's a fascinating uh, character we could spend hours speaking about. Uh, and I think the book is something that will really get readers to look more into Shinzo Abe and his legacy. Uh, the book is The Importance of Shinzo Abe, India, Japan, and the Indo-Pacific. Thank you so much, Dr. Sanjay Abaru and Swasini Haider for joining us today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Swasini. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 